This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the all things peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome to First Bite. 
fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in both the fed and the functional category, and I am once again over here in fangirl mode. Why? Well, drum roll, please. We have Dr. K to me back. And in case you missed her last time, be sure to go back and check out episode 30. Never fear, Dr. K. Toomey and SOS Feeding are here, and you will understand why I'm so excited about today. In our last episode, Dr. Toomey provided us with the data on the prevalence of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, explained the difference between picky eating and problem feeder, and provided the background or framework for the SOS approach to feeding. But I don't know about y'all, I still wanted more. It was like a nerdy appetizer, and my soul wasn't still satiated. So here we are today. Basically, as soon as we got done last time, my brain was moving rapid fire and I had several additional questions, as I'm sure many of y'all out there did. And Dr. Toomey has been gracious enough to come back for round two to tackle technical and professionally challenging questions. You know, the ones that I have, and I'm sure the ones that you have, the ones that we have struggled with for years, the questions that keep you up in the middle of the night. Well, here we are today to hopefully answer those. So, Dr. Toomey, hi, and thank you again for our last hour and for today's hour. So, yay! (laughs) Absolutely, Michelle. And thank you so much for having me back. I was very excited that you asked me to come back. So, thank you. Yeah, this is wonderful. Like, I have looked forward to this, like, all day long. (laughs) Great. Yay. Okay. All right. So, then let's just jump in. On another episode, I had a guest mention treatment about ARFIDs. So... And I have been confused on this. And after I listened to that one, I started actually using the term where prior to that I hadn't been. And then I used it and then I didn't feel comfortable with it. Then I asked you about it and you were like, man, we don't really say that. And so can you describe where the current literature sits with this term and then give us a better option or description to use in its place? Great. Absolutely. So it's going to get a little bit data driven. So hopefully this will speak to your nerd soul there, Michelle. That's where we need to look at because we're going to need to review some history. And one of the pieces of history is that before the 2013 release of the DSM-5, we did not have the ARFID diagnosis. It was a brand new diagnosis, which came out in the DSM-5 in 2013. Prior to 2013, if you felt like there was a major mental health component to a child's feeding problem, you're either going to have given them the ICD-9 criteria called feeding disorder of infancy and childhood. That was 307.59. And that was the same code that the DSM-4 and the DSM-4-TR used, feeding disorder of infancy and childhood, 307.59. Or if you were in the eating disorders field and encountering one of these kids who is a little bit older, you would have given them an eating disorder not otherwise specified. The DSM-5 diagnosis of ARFID was really driven out of the work being done in the eating disorders field because they were encountering these little bit older kids that didn't seem to fit a traditional eating disorder. And there was some concern because it seemed like this feeding disorder of infancy and childhood wasn't being used very much, which personally I think is appropriate. And as you remember, I'm a pediatric psychologist by training. So the previous diagnosis of feeding disorder of infancy and childhood was underneath the developmental disorders in the DSM. And the diagnostic criteria for that disorder assumed that it was non-physical based. 
I was referred to what we used to call non-organic. In the field, we don't talk about organic versus non-organic failure to thrive, but this diagnostic criteria was created a number of years ago. In addition to the fact it had to be non-organic, you had to have a persistent failure to eat adequately, resulting in no weight gain or weight loss of at least a month. You had to have absence of a medical condition severe enough to account for the feeding disturbance. The feeding disturbance could not be better accounted for by another mental health disorder or by a lack of food. And the onset of the disorder had to be before six years of age. And that was a real sticking point for a number of people. Williams, uh, Rigel, and Kerwin in 2009 did a study looking at, okay, how often was this diagnostic criteria actually being used? And they looked at uh, about 250 children who came to their feeding clinic over a number of years. And what they found is that only 7% of the kids would actually meet that criteria. And such a small number of kids met the criteria in part because 77% of them didn't actually meet the criteria for the weight loss or the lack of weight gain. And so people sort of felt like we weren't kind of capturing enough of these kids. So people felt like it was too restrictive, you know, which is fine, except they made it so inclusive that we now have a number of problems. So let's talk about what the ARFID criteria is. ARFID now is an eating or feeding disturbance as manifested by persistent failure to meet appropriate nutritional or energy needs associated with one or more of the following, significant weight loss or faltering growth, significant nutritional deficiency, so you no longer have to have a weight problem, just a significant nutritional deficiency, dependence on enteral feeding or oral supplements like a G-tube or Pediasure, and or marked interference with psychosocial functioning. There are some exclusionary criteria, just like previously. So the eating disturbance can't be better explained by a lack of food. The eating disturbance is not secondary to anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, and there is no evidence of a disturbance in the way one's body weight or body shape is experienced from a mental health standpoint. There's a third exclusion that says the eating disturbance is not attributable to a concurrent physical or medical condition or better explained by another mental health disorder. What they did is then put a caveat on this one that said when the eating disturbance occurs in the context of another physical condition or disorder, the severity of this child's eating disturbance exceeds what is routinely associated with that other physical condition or disorder. So if the kid has an oral pharyngeal dysphagia, like a known oral pharyngeal dysphagia, like premature spillage of the bolus, would that trump the ARFID then? Is that what they were saying by that? Well, theoretically, it would, unless this child you're seeing has a feeding problem that's more severe than most other children you see with that oral pharyngeal dysphagia diagnosis. So there's a couple of problems with this. Yeah. You know, I don't have a problem with the fact that they wanted to capture a wider group of children who would benefit from having a mental health provider involved in their care. But the first thing they did is they took this diagnostic criteria out of the developmental disorders part of the DSM and put it under the eating disorders part of the DSM. Basically, what they did by doing that is essentially they psychopathologized all feeding disorders. So if you have a child or a teenager who has been assigned an ARFID diagnosis, you are basically saying this child has a mental health disturbance about their eating. 
It is a mental disorder. So if you are not a mental health provider, you cannot assign this diagnostic criteria because a psychiatric disorder requires you have a mental health degree. So that's the first thing. So no rehab therapist should be assigning this disorder. There are certainly physicians who assign this disorder, but the issue is children who have feeding problems, it's not all in their heads. It's all in their bodies. I don't believe that children who have feeding problems have a mental health disorder, but that is what they did by putting this diagnostic criteria under eating disorders. The other thing is we don't actually have the data that says what is a normal feeding problem for a child with oral pharyngeal dysphagia? What is a normal feeding problem for a child with Down syndrome? What is a normal feeding problem for a child with cerebral palsy? Williams syndrome, Marfan's, CF. We don't have that data that says this is a normal feeding problem so that we could actually turn around and say, oh, this child does have ARFID because their feeding problem is worse than other kids with CP. That's what you would have to have data about in order to be able to say that. And in fact, Williams and their group in 2015 did another study about ARFID and basically said, in their opinion, the most problematic aspect of the ARFID diagnosis is we don't have data to say what normal feeding problems are for different diagnoses. And the other problem is we know from another Williams Field and Sieverling study done in 2010, they did a review of 38 feeding treatment studies. In those 38 studies, 97% of the children had some kind of physical or medical issue. So if you don't know what is a normal feeding problem for those 97% of kids who have the physical problem, you can't say that they have ARFID because you can't say that their feeding problem is greater than other kids. This is blowing my mind because I've seen so many colleagues and myself given the ARFID, like having said that previously, and nobody told me that that was not in our scope. No, it's not. It's not in a rehab therapist scope of practice. Yeah, nor was it explained to me that it had to be that level of extreme comparative to. Yes. This is like, that's how mind blowing this is, by the way. So thank you. So the issue is when you look at the children, most of the children who are getting or used to get the big ARFID diagnosis were kids in eating disorders programs. And when you look at those kids who were getting the ARFID diagnoses, they have illnesses of longer duration. They presented as young children with feeding problems. And I, Foreman, Wallen, Mayers, you know, all of them have done studies on it. In addition, Norris did a big study that looked at kids who have been diagnosed with ARFID out of an eating disorders clinic. And they typically had limited intake for at least two years, but they had restricted food range for four and a half years prior to that. So most of these kids who have quote unquote ARFID are actually presenting as young children and they actually have feeding disorders that haven't been treated appropriately. You said prior to two years. Yeah. So what Norris showed is the children who are getting ARFID diagnoses in eating disorders clinics, when you look at their history, they have a limited variety of foods that they have been eating for on average four and a half years prior to the diagnosis. And for the two years prior to the diagnosis, they had a limited intake. So basically what we're seeing is these kids who are getting these ARFID diagnoses present with feeding problems at 
two, three years of age, but they're not getting the ARFID diagnosis until six or seven. What it is, is they're actually kids who likely have feeding disorders that never got appropriately treated. And so they're a feeding disorder. They're not a mental health disorder. It's just that they've had a feeding disorder for a long time that hasn't been treated. We also know from looking at the studies that the kids who go on in eating disorders clinics to get an ARFID diagnosis are less likely to eat the healthy diet that they're supposed to be eating in the eating disorders clinic that they're at or the eating disorders program they're at because they don't have the skills to eat meat, real meat, hard raw fruits with peels, hard raw vegetables. And then that brings up the next controversy about the diagnosis, which is, is a skill deficit part of one of the exclusionary criteria? If a child has a skill deficit, does that classify as a physical or medical condition that should be part of the exclusionary criteria? And what you see when you look at the research, and I've done a lot of looking at the research, is the people who are using the ARFID criteria are not looking at whether the children have A, any of the exclusionary criteria, like you said, Michelle, you were never told. You had to look at those exclusionary criteria. And B, they're not looking at whether they have skill deficits. So if you fall in the camp, where skill deficits are a physical problem and should be part of the exclusionary criteria, then no child should be assigned an ARFID diagnosis unless you do a medical, physical, and skill evaluation first, because you have to know what those problems are. Then you have to be able to say this child's skill deficit feeding issue is worse than other kids with the same skill deficit. So if they don't have tongue tip lateralization, for example, to give them an ARFID diagnosis, their feeding problem because they don't have tongue tip lateralization, has to be worse than other kids with feeding problems with poor tongue tip lateralization. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. It makes it sound like it's completely not a thing. So the other big challenge we're having is the diagnosis is so inclusive now, these kids are being sent to eating disorders clinics and eating disorders therapists, not feeding disorders clinics and feeding disorders therapists. And that's a huge issue. Because an eating disorder protocol is very different than for a feeding disorder protocol. One thing they're going to do in an eating disorder protocol is make you stop doing physical activity and burning too many calories. So you eliminate the kid's proprioceptive input, which most of our kids need. They also select the foods for you that they decide are healthy for you to eat that are going to give you adequate nutrition. And most of the kids with skill deficits can't handle real meat, hard raw fruits with peels, hard raw vegetables, because they have skill deficits. They can't handle casseroles because they have sensory issues. And so what you see is the kids refuse to eat those diets. Because they're refusing to eat the diets, the kids are being escalated from an eating disorders clinic and being put inpatient in an eating disorders program. If you're in an eating disorders program, if you refuse to eat the meal the dietitian selected from you, you then have to drink your calories in Boost or Pediasure. If you refuse to drink all those calories, like many of our sensory kids will do, or kids with oral motor problems with thinner liquids will do, then basically you're strapped to the bed and an NG tube is stuck down your nose. And what they see in the data is the kids who have ARFID are happy as little clams for you to feed them via an NG tube, and they can't get rid of them in the eating disorders programs. Because these kids are like, hey, that's easier. Stick it down my nose. I don't have to chew it. I don't have to deal with the sensory stuff. Sure, that works for me. This is horrible. 
They have feeding disorders, not eating disorders. And, and that's what we need to be going towards. And so a parent support group called Feeding Matters, it's an online group, got together about 20 of the world's leading feeding experts as soon as this diagnosis of ARFID came out. And we have put together a consensus paper that we just published. And so it's in the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, 2019, volume 68, and page 124 to 129. The main editor is Praveen Gouday, so G-O-D-A-Y, so Praveen Gouday, and it's basically called Pediatric Feeding Disorder, Consensus Definition and Conceptual Framework. And what we did is we put together a consensus paper for a diagnostic category to be included in the ICD-11 as a medical, physical problem in children called pediatric feeding disorder. So we're no longer using the failure to thrive feeding disturbance, ICD-10 diagnostic criteria. We're going to a pediatric feeding disorder criteria because it's more accurate. And those of us who are part of the consensus paper, of course, believe that skill deficits are part of a physical problem that should be excluded from ARFID. And of course, the whole other thing with the ARFID is when the diagnosis came out, the psychiatric society even said, we do not have data to support this diagnosis. And yet they included it in the DSM-5 and refused to include sensory processing disorder, which has 30 years of research backing it. So we are using pediatric feeding disorder. That is the name and the criteria that people should be using, I strongly encourage you to go get the consensus paper. The pediatric feeding disorder criteria is based on World Health Organization criteria from the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health categories. So it is a much broader conceptualization of what the problem is. It doesn't attribute it all to kids' head. It doesn't attribute it all to their body. It's really a combination of things that you have to look at. So basically, the criteria for a pediatric feeding disorder is now a disturbance of oral intake of nutrients that is inappropriate for the child's age, lasting at least two weeks, and associated with one or more of the following medical problems, nutrient deficiencies, feeding skill deficits, and or psychosocial dysfunction. We do have some exclusionary criteria. It has to be in the absence of the cognitive processes consistent with eating disorders, so no body image or weight cognitive issues, and the pattern of oral intake is not due to a lack of food. So basically, you have to look at four domains if you are going to assign a pediatric feeding disorder, because when children don't eat well, it doesn't just impact one area of their life. It impacts multiple areas mm -hmm. of their life. So you have to look at medical dysfunction, nutritional dysfunction, feeding skill dysfunction, and psychosocial dysfunction. And so that's really what we need to be doing. And we need to help our rehab colleagues understand that if they are using an ARFID diagnosis, they should not be doing that because they're not mental health providers. That's the first piece. And then the second is if they do assign an ARFID diagnosis, they are essentially saying that this child has a mental disturbance that's greater than any other child with a similar type of feeding issue. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. The feeding difficulties ICD-10 code is R63.3. So everybody out there, that's the ICD-10 code for that one. Right. If they had taken and created this new ARFID diagnosis and left it under 
the developmental disorders in the DSM, it would not be as big of a problem as what it has created. Because they chose to put it under eating disorders, as I said, they automatically psychopathologize every child who gets this diagnosis. And they basically told indirectly eating disorders therapists that they now need to figure out what to do with these kids and how to treat them. Whereas what they used to do with these kids is send them to us as feeding therapists because they recognize them as likely having a feeding disorder, not an eating disorder. And so it's created a massive issue in the field. And hopefully people are going to see more and more data out there about how inappropriate this diagnosis is at this point in time with the way that it has been constructed. You just clarified so much for me. And I know I need the backstory. So thank you for going to the nerdy world because now it makes sense. <laughs> so thank right. you. Also, I'm just imagining how much damage for some of those kids that NG2 can cause. I've got a couple kiddos that that would just backfire them by weeks, months, years. So, yeah. All right. So moving on along to the next one, I'm going to be up tonight thinking about that, by the way. (laughs) It keeps me up at night too. (laughs) Trust me. If I'm up in the middle of the night and send you a random text message or email, you'll be like, ah, Michelle too is not sleeping tonight over stress. Fabulous. Okay. All right. So question number two, how often do you see a little one who is a, and I'm air quoting, even though you can't see me, a picky yep. eater, but it turns out that they were diagnosed with a dairy allergy or intolerance as a child, and you still suspect that they have a food allergy that has not yet been diagnosed. So like, how do you proceed? Because I've had way too many kiddos that were quote unquote picky eaters by their pediatricians. And I walk in and they're like, oh, no, no, no. It's just a dairy allergy. We eliminated the dairy and they're still you know, just a picky eater. But then when we finally get them to the right physician who, I don't know, does a scope and a biopsy, they find out that they have like EOE or celiac and, you know, but it was just a quote unquote picky eating situation. So, and unfortunately that does happen a fair amount. What you're going to see and what we know from the statistics and the research out there is that the incidence and prevalence in the general public of allergy sensitivities or intolerances is around three to 6%. So it's not that big out in the general public. That said, when you look at the incidence and prevalence of the kids who end up in feeding clinics, that comes up much higher. And it's going to be somewhere in the 15 to 25% of kids being seen in feeding clinics are going to have some kind of allergy sensitivity or intolerance. And by the way, those three things are different things, okay? And that's important for people to understand. An intolerance is a gut-based issue where something about the structural properties of the gut aren't working correctly. Food sensitivities and food allergies are immune system differences. And an allergy is when you have a small dose of food or an allergen and you have a big immediate reaction. With food sensitivities or other kinds of sensitivities, you have to have a much bigger dose over a much longer amount of time, and you're only going to see kind of subtle reactions. So there's a qualitative difference between sensitivities and allergies. Intolerances are gut-based. They're not immune system-based, typically. So that's important to understand too. But regardless of the origin of whether it's an allergy sensitivity or intolerance, if you as a child are eating something your body's not physiologically tolerating, you are not going to feel good physically. (laughs) You know, whenever you eat something that makes you feel sick, 
that's going to then turn around and impact the rest of your functioning. In addition, you're going to see because they don't feel well, their appetite begins to drop off. So you're going to have this secondary impact on appetite. Their sensory functioning is not going to be very good. You know, I like to say, think about the last time you had, you know, the flu with vomiting. Are you really able to tolerate people cooking curry in your house and playing disco music? No, you can't do that because when you don't feel good, your sensory systems don't function very well. And over time, if the kids keep eating things their bodies aren't tolerating, they are going to learn to associate food with discomfort and you're going to see learned avoidance behaviors. So having a food allergy, food sensitivity or intolerance absolutely is going to contribute to a child being a picky eater because they don't feel good and they learn that food doesn't make them feel good. And so they're going to start restricting their food range and and becoming picky. The other challenge is that in our medical community still, there is this belief that all children are picky and all children are going to outgrow it. And I think as we talked about last time, what the data clearly shows is that Somewhere around 33% of kids are going to struggle with some kind of picky eating in the first 10 years of their life. And only about half of those children are actually going to outgrow that picky eating. When you look at a single age, that statistic at a single age is only about 15%. So when you look at a single age, only about 15% of kids out there are actually picky. But yet somehow our medical community is still labeling huge number of kids as picky when that's likely not just what's going on. Because when a kid doesn't eat well, there's always a reason. And we can't assume it's just a developmental phase because the data doesn't support that. So what do you do about that? If you're seeing a kid who's been labeled as picky, the family comes in and says, oh, yeah, they were diagnosed with a dairy allergy when they were babies. And we put them on, you know, whole milk at a year, and now the kid won't eat anything. Well, you probably still have a kid who has a dairy allergy because we know that the majority of children don't outgrow their allergies until after about the age of three if they're going to actually outgrow them. And some children never outgrow their allergies. So the first thing that I would recommend that people do, especially if you know they have an allergy or sensitivity, or you suspect they have an allergy or sensitivity as the cause of their picky eating, you have to start by really getting yourself educated about what's an allergy, what's a sensitivity, what's an intolerance. There is a huge paper that came out in 2010 that is the Guidelines for Diagnosis and Management of Food Allergy in the United States. It's the report of the NIAID-sponsored expert panel. It is in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, Volume 126, and it's a supplement, and it's page 5 to page 58. There are 348 articles summarized, and they screened 12,300 originally. So that's the paper that you want to go to as the start of getting yourself educated. You also want to do things like get onto the Food Allergy Network. There's tremendous resources and education that you can do as a professional that families can do. Um, The other big group is the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. So it's (laughs) A-A-A-A-I. And you need to start by getting educated. You also need to understand what foods belong together in what allergy families 
and how common allergen foods hide. So we have families who come to us and say, yes, my child has been diagnosed with a dairy allergy, but yet they're still giving their child foods that have casein in them, caseinet in them, whey. Those are all ways that dairy hides. We have families who say, yes, my child's been diagnosed with a corn allergy, but they don't remove dextrose, dextrin, and maltodextrose out of the child's diet. Those are all ways that corn hides. So oftentimes, families think that they have removed the allergen or whatever the child's sensitive or intolerant to out of the child's diet, but they don't understand how those ingredients hide in foods. So you have to get yourself educated about how do you read labels on packaging? How do I make sure this child isn't being exposed to the eight most common allergenic foods? And those are going to be dairy, soy, wheat, eggs, peanuts, shellfish, fish, and tree nuts. So almonds, walnuts, macadamia nuts. So the first place is to get educated. The second thing to do if you suspect something, is to get a detailed review of this child's feeding history from the time they were born up to the time you're seeing them. And I literally have what I call a food and formula tracking form, and we start at birth. Tell me what your child was on at birth, what was the symptoms that they were having, what did they change to next, how old were they, and it's basically got age, product, basically what what their age is, what the food is, and what their symptoms are. And by doing that, you can go back and begin to figure out, hey, every dairy formula this child was on, they had a problem with. And when they put them on soy, they did better. Or when they put them on neocate, they did better or something. And you can start searching for those patterns. Once you have that list, then you look for those patterns and you create hypotheses about what foods or what ingredients you think this child is perhaps struggling with. And then you look at how do I test that hypothesis? Well, the first thing you do is if you suspect they're not tolerating dairy, you would never give them dairy in your feeding therapy. You would start offering and teaching them how to eat foods that are not dairy-based in your therapy so that you don't run the risk of accidentally exposing them to something you're concerned they may not be tolerating. The other thing you want to do is make friends with a dietitian. I have a very dear friend who's a dietitian. Yay! (laughs) You need to work with a registered dietitian because they're going to be the ones who can say, okay, if this kid needs to go off dairy, here are some higher nutritional substitutions that we can start teaching this child how to eat. The biggest mistake that therapists make, and sometimes we actually see medical professionals do this as well, They tell the family, just take all the dairy out of their diet. Well, the problem is if that's all the child eats and you haven't taught them how to eat a high nutrition dairy substitution, all of a sudden you have a child who doesn't eat anything. And we see kids all the time, especially kids on the autism spectrum, who the parents want to do a gluten-free, dairy-free trial. They cut the kids off cold turkey. The kid doesn't eat anything else, so they don't eat for several weeks. Then when the parents try to reintroduce dairy and gluten, they won't eat it because they've had too long of a break. And then the kids come to us in crisis because they've lost three pounds, five pounds, 10 pounds. And now they're really in big, big trouble. So you never want to eliminate a food out of a child's diet, cold turkey. Don't do that. You figure out what you suspect they're not tolerating, introduce other foods and teach them how to eat those other foods. 
The other thing, of course, you have to work with the child's doctor. If you've collected your data, you feel like you have a sound hypothesis about what this child's not tolerating. You now have the documentation. You need to go to the child's doctor with that documentation. And you need to ask them, you know, this is what I'm finding. Can you help me with this? Can you give me some ideas about where we should go with this? What do you want to do as the doctor about this? Are you okay that I'm going to introduce them to other foods that don't have any dairy or other foods that don't have any gluten in them? And you need to get the doc in the loop. If you work with a feeding team that has a physician on the team, you're going to have a lot more flexibility because if you have a physician on your feeding team, you're also going to have the opportunity to test the hypotheses directly and by changing up the diet a little bit more dramatically, as well as there's some medications that can possibly be considered to help test those hypotheses. So one option for you to think about as an individual provider is, do you have a feeding team in your community who could actually do something like that? And maybe referring that child to one of those teams might be where you want to go. And then the last thing I would advise people to do is keep Benadryl in your clinic. Keep it in your tool bag. If you do home therapy, keep it, you know, in whatever your supply bag is. If you feel like the child ate something and they're having a reaction to, what you're basically going to do is get that mom on the phone to their doctor's office immediately. They are to tell the physician's office, I believe my child is having an allergic reaction to food in this moment. I have Benadryl. Tell me what dose I should give my child. And then you hand the Benadryl and the syringe to the parent and they give the child the dose based on their physician's permission. Because we do see feeding therapists who are afraid to see these kids at all because they're so afraid the kids are going to have a reaction in their clinic or when they're there. You don't have to be afraid. You, you need to be educated. I actually had that happen for the very first time about three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. Uh-huh. The little one wasn't making much headway, head, um, head, you know what I'm trying yep. to say, here in the States. So they went to um, Texas. They went to a, one of the children's hospitals in Texas. And the specific directions given were to do peanut butter trials, X amount amounts increasing, you know, very systematically with Benadryl on hand and be prepared to call 911 in conjunction with the feeding therapist. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. That's so scary. Yeah. Yes. And it was the first time I had ever seen it done and written in black and white. And the mom was like, okay. And I was just consulting and offering guidance for a, another clinician friend. And mm-hmm. she had asked the mom to hold off until I was there. And I was like, it's cool. I'm the adult in this situation. So I like put on a smile and like definitely said numerous prayers and was like, let's do it. But like, I mean, you're absolutely correct. One of my scarier professional moments in my life. Happy to say we did not have to administer administer Benadryl, but like... If you do feeding therapy, you're going to work with kids who have food allergies, sensitivities, or intolerances because so many of those kids have feeding challenges. When you have to restrict a child's diet, it makes it more challenging for them to get the level of exposure they need to. And because we have to monitor their food, We create a a different level of hypervigilance in the child, in the parent, in everybody, right? And so it is something that you see. And and I do think it's important that anybody who does feeding therapy 
get very well educated and understand that you, you know, need to be comfortable with potential situations. I have had numerous situations over the years where we thought we were doing this great thing because we finally got this kid to eat this whole range of new foods. And all of a sudden the child's having eczema, the child's having this reaction, they're having that reaction. And you're like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. What did we just teach them? (laughs) Food makes me feel sick. There's a really good research article out there. It was in one of the Asha SIGs and y'all, um, it was Asha SIG 13 and it was Melconian and Dematia. And it talked about the prevalence of food allergies. 50 to 60% are GI, 50 to 60% show up on the surface of the skin and 20 to 30% are respiratory. And that 20 to 30% blew my mind. But when they talked about it, what it looks like in a newborn or in an infant that sounds like chronic upper airway congestion. It was the mucus production from the body trying to coat to protect from the dairy and or soy allergy. Right. As well as the histamine response, right? Because one of the things your histamine response does is create mucus. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. And folks, I'm telling you what, when I printed that off and I have had Dialectal variation. I work in the Southeast and because I have my petite rack, it means I do not have an IQ with some physicians and I'm not making that up. So like I have taken that article and gently handed that across to the family and said, please share this with your physician. And that has opened doors to allergists that were shut beforehand. So sometimes we have to give them data. Yes. Because if it's in black and white and it's well-researched and it's published, I mean... Right. Data is always a helpful tool. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when we're trying to do those hypothesis testing and bring in other professionals. You know, Mm -hmm. having the data, having the research is key. Okay. So I just wonder... I have wondered, and I actually told Aaron, my partner in crime on this lovely podcast, that I really feel like we need to step it up and that we need to submit a call for papers for the statewide pediatricians association conference, because we need to actually put out there the world of feeding therapy from our perspective. I guess I have hit the point in my career and my old ladiness because I'm telling you what, something dynamic happened when I turned 36 years old. I'm like, let's take on the world. <laughs> you are you are such a baby. <laughs> I was going to say, try 56. <laughs> Actually, I'm much older than that even. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm like having this much gray hair. I have reached the point where I'm like, okay, we have to take this to them. Yeah. And I feel like as a profession, we have not been taught as a profession of speech pathologists that we have to lean in and educate the physicians because they don't know what we know. We don't know what they know. But if we're not reaching out to them, then we're not creating the interprofessional practice that we should be. And I feel like if we want to do it, so everybody out there, I feel like if we really want to fix this, then put in a call for papers. Put your big girl britches on or big boy pants or whatever they're called and let's go fix the world. Yay, go team. (laughs) So the other thing, though, I would encourage you all to to even look smaller than that. I think going to the local associations is great. And going to your state association for the medical teams is great. But think smaller than that. Go and present at rounds at the hospitals that you work in. Ask the education departments if you can come and give a presentation 
about new data about research, if you can give a presentation about ARFID, if you can give a presentation about the role of feeding therapy and how it can help their practices, think about doing lunch and learns. Donuts. I bring donuts. Yeah. When I want to build a bridge, I bring a box yep. of Dunkin' Donuts yeah. or Krispy Kreme. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, every city has, you know, a pediatric division in some hospital. Contact those divisions. They have to provide ongoing continuing education. Figure out what kinds of different educational opportunities are there and, and can you go and speak? And some of the best ways that I've gotten known in my community is simply by presenting at rounds for different hospitals in the Denver metro area. And for me, I actually start with a study by Eman, E-M-O-N-D, out of 2010, and it's out of a big longitudinal study called the ALSPAC study. And basically, it's a study that shows that in their longitudinal study, the children who went on by the age of 11 to get an autism diagnosis, the first sign that you had that they were experiencing some problems in their life were feeding difficulties in infancy. And it's a very fascinating study. And I actually lead off my talks to physicians with that because they need help to understand that when kids don't eat, it's not just that they're picky. It's not just a developmental phase. It's much more complicated than that. But that is what many physicians are taught if they're taught anything about feeding. Physicians have so many things they have to learn about saving our lives. They don't have the time and ability to get down in the weeds like the rest of us do and really look at the details of the fact there's 32 steps in the process of learning to eat a new food. You know, the average pediatrician has seven minutes to spend with a child. That's the average time right now, seven minutes per appointment. I don't get anything done in seven minutes. I can't even no. say anything in seven minutes. <laughs> You, know? <laughs> you might be an honorary speech pathologist, friend, because I'm just saying that. <laughs> Who does anything in seven minutes? You know, so it is about educating our colleagues and they want the information. They know that they don't have time to do the level of hour and a half, hour, two hour assessments that they do. But we have to provide them with the education to know when should they send the kids on to us. And I've done a lot of talks on just helping physicians understand the difference between picky eaters and problem feeders, just so they can figure out, okay, who are the kids who are picky that I don't have to worry about? And who are the kids I need to be monitoring and thinking about sending on to see a therapist? Okay. Think smaller is what I'm Think saying. Smaller. Think big too, but start small, grassroots. Grassroots. All right. Slowly. What is the rule? Six degrees of change. We're going to change the world by six degrees of change. Yep. All right. Everybody out there. Call to action. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> okay. We have 10 minutes left. Yep. Okay. So here's my curveball in 10 minutes. I am genuinely curious about this because I've had numerous folks come from acute care adults or from SNFs. They want to make the transition into the world of early intervention or pediatrics in general, especially when they themselves are in the tiny human rearing stage of their lives. Right. So like, you know, they had fast paced acute, subacute, adult careers, and all of a sudden they're home with a newborn and they want to go back to work. Also on that note, new mamas, if you're listening, hang in there. You're going to survive this. Wait to the beauty of month four, something miraculous happens. And that sweet little booger poop factory will smile at you. And it's really magical. So new mommies out there, hang in month four. <laughs> but okay, back to the question. They often ask me this very important and valid question. 
what is your favorite resource to get started in the world of pediatric feeding therapy? And then I more or less very unprofessionally word vomit at them like a ton of resources because I always feel like one is insufficient. And then the colleague kind of stares at me with the deer and headlights looks and I've made them overwhelmed because I have awkward turtle social graces. So what resources do you recommend? So that's a really, really tough question. So I don't blame you for word vomiting because it's an extremely (laughs) difficult question to answer. And it's because the answer is there is no single resource. We do not have a single resource to train somebody how to shift into being a good pediatric feeding therapist. We just don't. And part of the issue is because there are seven different areas of human function involved in the process of eating. And to be a good pediatric feeding therapist, you have to educate yourself about all seven areas, human function, in order to do a good job. In addition, Adult nutrition and adult eating and feeding is really different than pediatric nutrition and eating and feeding. And oftentimes, if you've been doing primarily adult therapy, you're going to have to unlearn some of what you've learned to do because most adults are functioning under what we call the top 10 myths of mealtime. And when you believe the myths about mealtime, it interferes with your ability to understand why this child isn't eating. So my advice is you need to think about going to a live training workshop. Going to a conference that is a live training experience is going to be the best way for you to get yourself trained. There is no single book out there that is going to provide you what you need. There is no single videotaped program that is going to provide you what you need. It's just too time consuming. You know, a good training experience should be a minimum of two days up to five days because you need such an incredible wealth and breadth of information. So that's the first thing I would say. But as a part of that, you need to also thoroughly research what options are out there because there are two major ways to treat children with feeding difficulties around the world. And I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to speak around the world. I actually just got back two weeks ago from Beijing and Hong Kong. Oh my goodness. And there are literally two ways to treat kids around the world with feeding issues. One is through the use of systematic desensitization and the other is through the use of flooding. And typically when you look at the courses being advertised, you're going to see the workshops being described as being play-based, child-directed, or reinforcement-based volume-directed is going to be the major differences. And you as a therapist need to do some soul-searching about what is your therapy style? What are you comfortable with? If you're used to being down on the floor, playing in the mud with your own kids, your grandkids, your nieces, nephews, your clients, consider more of a systematic desensitization play-based program. Consider coming to an SOS approach to feeding workshop. Consider going to Marsha Dunn-Klein's get permission approach workshops that take more of that play approach, systematic movement, stepwise forward approach. If your style that you prefer being directive, you prefer to be educational, you prefer to be the one in charge, you do better. If you're leading the therapy, think about some of the other feeding courses out there that are more therapist-directed versus child-directed. Both Marsha Dunn-Klein as well as myself with SOS, we have you know some kind of course out somewhere in the world at least once a month. You can go to our websites and find a course near you. If you are more comfortable with that therapist-led, that therapist-directed approach, Education Resources, Inc. is 
one of the better places to search for the various different kinds of feeding courses that are out there. And then the Feeding Matters uh, group also is another major place to look for feeding courses. And then, of course, Michelle, I don't know what kinds of work that you do to let people know what kinds of feeding courses are out there. There is an approach that's kind of in between flooding and systematic desensitization, and that would be Ellen Satter's work on the Division of Responsibility Program. And you can go to her website as well, and she has a number of books and educational programs out. Her program is really designed more for the typically developing child, and so you want to go into that um, with that understanding. There are a couple of books that I would say you could certainly consider looking at, but they're not going to be sufficient. Most of the books that are out there are written from a single discipline's viewpoint. And feeding is so much more complicated than that. But there is a book by Susan Roberts called My Kid Eats Everything, The Journey from Picky to Adventurous Eating. There is a book by Diane Barr, B-A-H-R, called Feed Your Baby and Toddler Right, Early Eating and Drinking Skills that Encourage the Best Development. That's going to have more of that oral motor type of perspective. And then there's a book by Marianne Jacobson and Jill Castle called Fearless Feeding, How to Raise Healthy Eaters from High Chair to High School. That's going to have more of a dietitian perspective. So that's the challenge out there is most of the books out there, as I said, are really written from a single disciplines perspective. And that's just not going to be sufficient to give you a good training. So that's why I say go to a workshop and then supplement what you do with the books. That's what I have done over my career. I have taken numerous workshops and I built the six hour lecture that I give the day, the one day long workshop that I do because it was, I saw everybody focusing in on one aspect and I was like, you have to get the PMH because we're missing something. I do not believe in such a thing as a behavioral only feeding aversion because every kiddo that I had, that has graced my proverbial doorstep that has had a quote unquote behavioral only as diagnosed by like the pediatrician that gave it. When we chase the swallow down, there's a medical etiology, right. whether it be an allergy or an oropharyngeal dysphagia or... That's what the data supports as well, Michelle. The data yeah. clearly indicates that it's purely behavioral, purely mental health in only about 3 to 5% of the cases. And so yeah. the fact that the mental health diagnostic disorder in the DSM-4 wasn't being used very often is actually really quite appropriate because if you have a behavior problem, or an environmental issue that's caused you to not eat very well, you're going to end up with medical problems on top of it. And vice versa, if you have a medical or physical problem, you're going to end up with learned avoidance behaviors on top of that. And so to talk about it as one or the other is really not helpful. When you said that in our last episode, we got done and I actually just sat back and was like, I'm not nuts. Oh. I can't tell you how reassuring it was because in my neck of the woods, it's so often I've been told, it's just picky eating. It's just a behavior thing. You don't need to do X, Y, and Z. We don't need to see the referrals. And when you provided the data, it was like life assuring validation to my yeah. soul. So like, I was like, oh, no, you're, you. you're absolutely right. It's just unfortunately, that is what people are still being taught. And so we have to figure out how to make that impact. We're going to start doing in-services at our local hospitals and bring them donuts. (laughs) Don't worry. We got this. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I just, I have to be observant of our time. And like, I seriously, if you 
if you in three months have another little spot in your schedule and want to come back, I will say yes, please. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. It's always fun talking with you. And it's fun to really have to, you know, stream down my thinking. As I said, I can't usually say anything in seven minutes. Um, So I have to consolidate how I talk about things really helps refine my thinking too. So if you guys have questions from your listeners that you really would like to have answered, I'm happy to step in and come back. Well, thank you. And this is lovely. And thank you so very much. I got to give a shout out because there's a lovely lady who rode shotgun today who is just tiptoeing into the waters, I believe is the word that uh-huh. you use, um, pediatric dysphagia. So Miss um, Danielle Kruger from South Carolina State University who rode shotgun. You got to say hi, lady. Hi. Thank, thank you for joining us. <laughs> she she was over here geeking out with me going oh my gosh she's amazing (laughs) so uh thank you very much and um everybody please do go check out the sos approach to feeding and i will um i will be there hopefully for the 2020 i will pick y'all up Uh (laughs) and uh, i I did look and see and in 2022 i think we're going to be in uh charleston south south carolina so is that any closer? Go to the website, sosapproach.com and search for our calendar. We're somewhere near you sometime in the next few months. Great. Hey, have you heard? First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional has partnered up with FeedingMatters.org. Be sure to check us out on their website and you can find a list of our past webinars and or pod courses and upcoming events with some of our nation's greatest feeding gurus available. Also, Feeding Matters is currently calling all healthcare professionals and community members. Feeding Matters is accepting presentation proposals through May 10th, 2019 for the entirely virtual 2020 International Pediatric Feeding Disorder Conference. Here's your chance to share research, skills, and evidence-based practices related to pediatric feeding disorders. To learn more, visit IP fdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.